Well, as we uh, approach this, uh, this passage this morning, we're actually looking at the, um, the last of the, the Ten Commandments this morning. And uh, it seems like such a long time since we've, been, since we've started this, but really it's only been, uh, been 11 weeks. An introduction and, uh, and now this, this, tenth, um, this tenth message. So I'd ask you to please uh, stand with me out of reverence for the word of our Lord as we uh, as read the whole of uh, the Ten Commandments from Exodus 20, verses 1 to 17. But again, I'll be focusing um, just on verse 17. Exodus 20, verse 1. God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down and worship them or serve them, for I, am the Lord, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who's within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and mother that your days may be long in the land the Lord your God has given you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. And let's pray again together. Holy God, as we approach your holy word, we realize that we are standing on holy ground. For these commandments are your word to us, to your people throughout all ages. Lord, we praise you that in your word and in this moral law, we see your holiness. We see our unholiness. We see our need of a Lord and Savior. We see our need for Jesus Christ, the sinless one who fully obeyed you who loved you perfectly, who loved his neighbor perfectly, but was crucified as a transgressor in our place. And so, Lord, as we approach you this morning in your word, we pray that, that you would shine your light in the dark places of our hearts. Lord, expose that which is sinful. Expose that which, which is actually rebellion against you. And grant us faith and repentance through the work of your Holy Spirit in our hearts. That we might grow in love for you and that your church might be built for the glory of your name. Amen. In 1 Kings chapter 21, we have an incident, one of the, one of the, the most atrocious crimes that, that we see committed in the scriptures against another person. We see the wicked king Ahab offering to purchase the vineyard of his neighbor Naboth. And we know throughout this, this testimony that, that Ahab was an extremely wicked king and that he had an extremely wicked wife, Jezebel. But Ahab coveted Naboth's vineyard and Naboth's vineyard was was adjacent. It was the the next-door neighbor to the king's palace And Ahab wanted the vineyard to, to build a to create a vegetable garden And he offered to to give Naboth money, but but Naboth was more righteous than Ahab Na, Naboth refused saying that the Lord would the Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my father's 
It was against God's law that the, that the, the land that had been decreed to the people would go to another family outside of the family to whom it had, it had been bequeathed. And Ahab, the king of Israel, went to his house vexed and sullen because of Naboth's refusal. Here he was, the king of Israel. And this lowly person was refusing the desires of the king. And, and Ahab lay down on his bed and turned his face away. He wouldn't even eat because he was so upset. Enter Jezebel. She asked him, Why is your spirit so vexed that you eat no food? And Ahab explained Naboth's refusal to sell him the vineyard. And then so Jezebel said to her husband, Do you now govern Israel? Arise and eat bread and let your heart be cheerful. I will give you the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. And you know what happens? She writes, letters in Ahab's name and, and, and calls there to be a feast and to set a fast rather and to set Naboth at the head of the people and then he set two wicked men opposite Naboth who falsely accused him of, of blasphemy against God and of treason against the king saying Naboth cursed God and the king and so the men took Naboth outside and stoned him to death with stones. And then when this had taken place, Jezebel came to Ahab and said, Arise, take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite, which refused to give you for money, for Naboth is not alive but dead. As soon as Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, Ahab arose to go down to the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite to take possession of it. And we know that because of this incident and because of many others that, that Ahab and his wife Jezebel were cursed by God and that, that the, it was declared that the, the blood of Ahab would, would fall in the very place where Naboth died and that the dogs would lick up the blood of Ahab because of this wickedness against Naboth. Here we have the, the king of Israel, one of the most powerful men in the world at that time. But he was not satisfied with all that he had. He coveted his neighbor's vineyard. And his covetousness led to the murder of his righteous neighbor. Now when we think about covetousness, we, we realize that it it, it, it thankfully most often does not result in, in death. It does not often result in, in the murder of the, of the person whose stuff you want. But when we understand what is really taking place in our hearts, when we are wanting what someone else has, when we are, are coveting someone else's possessions, this is really a sin of the, the same species as murder. It's hatred of your neighbor. And it's also idolatry against God because it's saying, I want that stuff more than I want God. Now, as you know, I don't normally preach the calendar, but this really would have been a, a good sermon for last Sunday as we, we gathered around our tables to celebrate Thanksgiving. I wonder, was there, was there covetousness as you sat down at your table with your family to celebrate Thanksgiving? Was there any, any kind of, of arguing over the drumsticks? <laughs> or in, in our family, back in the day, we used to argue over, over the, the tail of the trick, which we called it the Pope's nose. <laughs> or maybe you were, you, were, you were wrangling over that largest piece of pumpkin pie. Think about the irony of this, that, that at, a, at a table, we're, we're called to sit, we're sitting down, give thanks to God for His provision, and we're being covetous. And the reality is that covetousness is, is a besetting sin for so many. Each one of us 
struggles to a certain extent with this sin. And covetousness is, is really one of the, the most difficult sins to, to root out and to kill because it's below the surface. Because covetousness takes place at, at that level strictly beneath the surface. It takes place in the heart. It, it doesn't necessarily have an outward action. Now, it can lead to outward actions, as we'll see that, that most, if not all, of the Ten Commandments have, to a certain degree, covetousness at their root. But when we covet, we are breaking the great commandment. We're failing to love God as He requires, and we're failing to love our neighbor as ourselves. And covetous is not just only in, in wanting other people's stuff. You can be covetous about the stuff that you, you have. You can be, be covetous about the stuff that, that you want. The single person says, if only I was married. The married person says, if only I had kids. The parent says, if only my kids were grown up and out of the house. And the grandparent says, if only my kids would come to visit. We, we can all be covetous about, about really pretty much anything. Many people look at, at what other people have and want what they have. They aren't satisfied with what they have. Many factors lead to, to this dissatisfaction and then advertising executives get filthy rich capitalizing on that dissatisfaction. Vance Packard quoting Christianity in Crisis magazine in his best-selling book, The Hidden Advertisers, says that there is pressure to consume, consume, and consume. Whether we need or even desire the products that are forced upon us. And Packard explained that the, the advertisers actually use psychologists to, to get the, to, with the goal of, of advertising to cause consumers to muse absent-mindedly about all the pleasures, joys, enthusiasms, agonies, nightmares, deceptions, and apprehensions in order to manipulate them into purchasing their products. And he says, one ad executive exclaimed with fervor, what makes this country great is the creation of wants and desires, the creation of dissatisfaction with the old and outmoded. He explains that advertisers develop schemes to convince customers to make impulse purchases. Now, Packard's book was published in 1957. What would he say now in the, the age of Amazon Prime? When people are even less satisfied than what they had before, that they can have pretty much anything that they want within two days shipping. Just think for a moment about the, the smartphone that's in your pocket. Almost 90% of the population, these statistics are American, almost 90% of the population has a smartphone. That smartphone that, that you depend so much on, it's your internet browser, it's your camera, your alarm clock, your day planner, your entertainment hub, your, your calculator, and it's also your phone. Now think about the smartphone that was in your pocket five years ago. Would you be satisfied with, with that phone now, with, with its resolution on its screen or, or its, 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 its speed? Or what about the smartphone that was in your pocket 10 years ago? Well, 10 years ago, you probably didn't have a smartphone in your pocket because 10 years ago, only 17% of the population had a smartphone. In fact, it hasn't really even been that long since people had any kind of phone in their pocket whatsoever. In the year 2000, only 28% of the population owned a cell phone. Now, almost 100% of the population owns a cell phone. And now we feel like we cannot live without one. And maybe you're happy with, with, your, with your old phone until your friend shows up with the, with the next newest model. Or maybe until the next Apple event. But maybe it's not a phone. Maybe it's, maybe it's something else. Maybe it's, it's your car or your, your home or your position. You, you name it. You can be covetous about pretty much anything. The question is, are you 
dissatisfied with anything. Now that's what we're dealing at with when we look at the Tenth Commandment. The command, you shall not covet. Exodus 20, 17, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. And once again, as we've seen for each of the commandments, there is a, a sin forbidden and a duty required. So first, let's look at the, the sin forbidden. The sin that's forbidden in this is, is obviously covetousness. You shall not covet. Now, we don't hear the word covet very often in, in modern, spe modern speech. We use words like, like jealous or, or envious. And that's certainly part of the, the meaning of the word that's translated covet. But it also includes delight or desire. So, something that, that you take delight in or set your desire upon. In fact, it's the same word that's used in Genesis 3.6 when the serpent, the first advertising executive, tempted Eve in the garden so that she saw that the tree was good for food. It was delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate she also gave some to her husband, who is with her, and he ate. And ever since that moment, people have been coveting ever since. But prior to the serpent's temptation, Eve did not even have a desire for the forbidden fruit. She was satisfied with what she had. She was satisfied with the graciousness of God in the garden to say, you can eat of any of the trees in this garden except for that one. And more importantly than that, she was satisfied with her relationship with God. And so we know what happened. She, she gave, she ate some and gave to her husband, and he ate the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And people have been dissatisfied ever since. Now, the Roman Catholic Church falsely splits this commandment into two because they've removed the third commandment about graven images. But this is really one covenant, one, one commandment rather, you shall not covet. And it's repeated for emphasis. It's the only commandment that does so. But again, when you ask the question, what, what is it that you are dissatisfied with? Now, chances are your neighbor doesn't have a servant or an ox or a donkey, but don't worry, you're not exempt. The final phrase sums it up. Or anything that is your neighbor's. Is there anything that your neighbor has that you covet? Again, maybe it's, maybe it's not a phone. But maybe you look at your neighbor's stuff, his, his house, his wife, or her husband. Kids, car, vacation, promotion, lawn, garden. It can be anything. When you start out discontented, not satisfied, not thankful for what you do have, you begin to look around at what other people have. And it's a very subtle shift from, from wanting something to wanting something that someone else has. A seductive voice whispers in your ear, you deserve that. It should be your house, your car, your wife, your promotion, your position in the church, your whatever. And it causes you on a certain level to begin to resent your neighbor, to be at enmity against your neighbor as that, that voice builds the case against him. He doesn't deserve that. Look at his life. Look at my life. I deserve so much more than him or her. This is what James warns against in James 4, 1 and 2. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You have, you do not have because you do not ask. Now, in some cases, the person who has the stuff that you're coveting is actually wicked. That was Asaph's problem in, in Psalm 73. I'd ask if you could please turn with me there for a moment to Psalm 73. Asaph in verse 1 confesses God's faithfulness to his people. 
But then Asaph tells the story of his own unfaithfulness, verses 2 and 3. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And then Asaph goes on to describe their apparent prosperity. They experience no pain, no hunger, no problems. And they, they grow so brazen in their pride and their foolishness and their malevolence and blasphemy. And meanwhile, Asaph says, I've been stricken and I've been afflicted every morning. I've been rebuked every morning. And so Asaph here was highlighting his own righteousness, what he felt he deserved compared to his neighbor's wickedness. And Asaph was jealous of his neighbor when he should have been pitying his neighbor. Look down at verses 17 and following. Until I went to the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. God sets them in slippery places. He makes them fall down in ruin. He destroys them. He utterly sweeps them away by terrors. God despises them. Brothers and sisters, are you envious of the wicked? Over anything? Would you ever want to trade places with the wicked? Coveting your neighbor's possessions is an abject failure to keep the second part of the great commandment. It's a failure to love your neighbor as yourself. It's a failure to love your neighbor because you want their stuff to be your stuff. You aren't thankful that they're being blessed. A.W. Pink says that, that envy has been described as the rust of a cankered soul. A foul vice which turns the happiness of others into our own misery. Think about that picture with, with Ahab and Naboth. Ahab wasn't, wasn't content with, with all that he had, all of his own vineyards. He wanted that one vineyard that belonged to his neighbor. And he became so dejected that he wouldn't even eat. Because he wanted what Naboth had. And so when it, when it comes to, to covetousness, you, you immediately cease to be concerned about your, your neighbor at all, uh, about his well-being or especially about his spiritual welfare. We need to understand that covetousness is not just failure to keep the second part of the great commandment. It's the abject failure to keep the first part of the great commandment too. It's a failure to love God with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind, and all of your strength. So first of all, covetousness is a failure to love God because you are lying about His attributes when you're coveting what someone else has. You're saying that God is not loving or wise or just or sovereign or, or some combination of, of, of the above. Either, either God does not love you because He's not giving you what you want or so you think or you're saying that God isn't wise that God doesn't really know what's best for you. Or you're thinking that God isn't just, that, that God is not being fair by withholding some good thing from you and giving it to your neighbor who is less deserving than you. You're thinking that God isn't sovereign. He isn't really in control of all of the circumstances of your life. My friends, all of these are blasphemous denials of who God is. It's blasphemy against God's character. But covetousness runs even deeper than that. Kevin DeYoung suggests that, that each of us do this exercise. It's a, a fill in the blank. Answer this yourself. If only I had blank, I would be happy. If only I had blank, I would be happy. What's in that blank? A nicer house? A newer car? A spouse? Children? Grandchildren? Good looks? Successful career? Spotless health? What's in that blank? 
I think we need to ask another question that is parallel to the Young's. If I lost blank, I couldn't be happy. What is it that, that if you were to lose in your life, you would say, I, can, I can't be happy without that thing. Now we don't consciously think that way. But so often we act that way. We, we have these, these things that we, we feel we cannot live without. We're not satisfied. And so we strive for more or, or strive to protect what we have out of covetousness. It's not about possessions or no possessions. The question is, do you possess possessions or do your possessions possess you? Do you possess possessions or do your possessions possess you? Because you can display covetousness in what you already own. Is your security in your stuff? Do you serve stuff or do you use your stuff to serve others? Think about your home. Do you see it as a, as a place for, for hospitality, where, where you can, can welcome the saints into your home, where you can practice outreach, invite unbelievers into your home to, 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 to declare the gospel to them and to live out the gospel before them? Or your car. Is your car a, a status symbol? Something, something where, where you use it to make yourself feel good about yourself or want other people to see you driving around in your car? Or is, is your car something that you use to serve others, to, to give someone a lift or to get in your car and to drive to go and visit someone? Or your money. Do you see your money as, a, as an opportunity to be more comfortable and to, to enjoy more stuff? Or do you see your money as an opportunity to help and to serve others? Your stuff isn't your stuff. Your stuff is a stewardship. It's God's stuff. That, that God is lending to you for a little while to be used for His glory. Listen to Thomas Watson. It is lawful to use the world, yea, and to desire so much of it as may keep us from the temptation of poverty. Quoting Proverbs 38 9, Give me not poverty, lest I steal and take the name of the Lord in vain. And may enable us to honor God with works of mercy. Proverbs 3 9, Honor the Lord with thy substance. But he says what, what the danger is, when the world gets into the heart. He says that water is useful for the sailing of a ship, but all the danger is when the water gets into the ship. So the fear is when the world gets into the heart. Has the world gotten into your heart? And one of the clear ways that the world gets into your heart is through your stuff. So what filled that blank? What, what was that thing that you feel that, that you need in order to be happy? Again, from Kevin DeYoung, for most of us, the blank is our functional God. It's our functional God. That person, place, or thing that we can't live without. Coveting, he says, at its root is idolatry. It's idolatry. The covetous person is an idolater. Ephesians 5.5 5. You may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Covetousness is idolatry. Colossians 3.5.2 Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and Covetousness, which is idolatry. Covetousness is idolatry. So then with the 10th commandment, we're really circling back around to the first commandment. The, the command, you shall have no other gods before me, is a command against idolatry. So is the 10th. Now, in my first sermon on uh, my sermon on the first commandment, I, I began by using the rich young ruler as a, an illustration from Matthew 19. You know the story. 
The, the, the rich young man said, Teacher, what good must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus replied, What do you ask me? Why do you ask me about what is good? There was only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. And so the man asked, Which ones? And Jesus told him, You shall not commit murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness on your father and mother and love your neighbor as yourself. The young man selfishly replied, All these I have kept. What do I still lack? And now Jesus gave the command that revealed the man's heart. He said, If you'd be perfect, Go sell what you possess and give to the poor. You will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. So with this command, Jesus gave the man an opportunity to see his own heart. But we know what happened. Faced with the choice of, of Jesus or possessions, the man chose his possessions. He was at the same time breaking the 10th commandment and the first commandment. He was covetous. The man was an idolater. And Jesus was showing that, that you cannot get to heaven by keeping the commandments because you haven't kept any of the commandments. The same was true of him, and the same is true of us. The Tenth Commandment goes straight for the heart. It goes straight for the heart. Now, all of the commandments deal with the heart, but they first deal with outward behavior. It's not just murder, but hatred that's forbidden. It's not just adultery, but lust. Again, from A.W. Pink, he says, the best way to keep men from committing sin is an act to keep, is to keep them from desiring it in the heart. And so this commandment doesn't start with, with outward behavior and then gradually go inwards. It actually deals with the, the inward behavior, with the internal attitudes of the heart that are not visible to others. They're often not even visible to yourself. For, for so many of us, covetousness is, is such a reflex that we do it without even thinking about it. And so God, in His Word, in, in giving us His moral law, is shining His light on, the, on this, this aspect of His moral law that, that we all break so easily. Even if you don't see covetousness in your life, you are not your own judge. Other people aren't your own judge. It, it's so easy to deceive yourself. Paul says in in 1 Corinthians 4, 4, For I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I'm not thereby acqu acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. So the Lord is the righteous judge, and He is on His throne. And His standard is absolute perfection when it comes to this or any of the commandments. The Lord sees everything, even what is going on in your heart at this very moment. And his standard, again, is 100% perfection. You can't say when you look at the Ten Commandments, hey, I got 7 out of 10. I'm better than average. The reality is, you and I both get 0 out of 10 every day of our lives, and God doesn't grade on the curve. Only 10 out of 10 only perfect obedience is a passing grade. And you can't compartmentalize the Ten Commandments. God's moral law is a, is a complete unit. It, it all goes together. And outward conformity to God's law will not suffice. God wants all of you. He wants all of you. Every part of you. And then that takes us to the duty required. You must be content. You must be content. The scriptures are very honest about desires. Proverbs 13, 12 says, Hope deferred makes the heart sick, but a desire fulfilled is a tree of life. Many of us here know, know what it's like to have hope deferred. 
or people who have faced desires for a long time to, to get married or to have to have children or or to be out of debt and or and, and things like this we we know what it's like to have unfulfilled desires and the scripture is honest about that but hear me that, that having desires in and of itself is not wrong it's not about having desires but it's having the right desires in the right proportion it's about having your desires submitted to God. If there is something that you earnestly desire, ask God for it. Ask God for it. And, to, to, and you must then trust Him to give you what He knows is best in His perfect timing. Fellow Christian, if God is withholding something from you, if God is, is not giving something that you want to you, it's because it's not good for you to have it. At least for now. James 1.17 says, Every good gift and every perfect lift, gift comes from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. God is your heavenly Father. God is faithful. God is wise. God is just. God is loving. And He knows what is best for you and he will give it to you if it is for your best and for his glory and so if if you have those unfulfilled desires submit your desires to god pray lord this is what i want but not my will but your will be done and pray lord please help me to glorify you in this time of wanting and in all of this, strive to cultivate an eternal perspective. Focus on the eternal reality. The reality is you came into this world with a body. You're leaving with less. The reality is that godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world that we cannot take anything out of the world. 1 Timothy 6, 6 and 7. The reality is this life is fleeting. There's a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. James 4.14 Remember the deceitfulness of riches that, that can choke the word and make it unfruitful. Matthew 13.22 This is what happened to that rich young man in Matthew 19. His riches barred the way from heaven because he loved his riches more than God. You have to preach to yourself. You have to intentionally set your mind on things that are above, not on the things that are of the earth. Colossians 3, 2. And if, if riches increase, set not your heart on them. Psalm 62, 10. Paul gave specific instructions to Timothy regarding the wealthy in 1 Timothy 6, or 4, rather 6, 17 to 19. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides for us every, with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so they make, may take hold of that which is truly life, cultivating an eternal perspective, Similarly, in, in Matthew 6, verses 19 to 21, Jesus warned, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth nor rust destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where are you investing? Are you investing in the things of this life? Or are you investing in the things of eternal life? How do you stop seeking treasure in this life? Again, by laying up treasures in heaven. And the ultimate way that you lay up treasure in heaven is by treasuring God. It's by treasuring God. Remember that, that covetousness is idolatry. So the cure for covetousness is worship. The cure for covetousness is worship. Again, the issue with covetousness is, is, is not that people have desires. It's not about having no desires, but having the right desires 
in the right proportion. And this is the heart of the whole matter. C.S. Lewis famously explained in, in The Weight of Glory, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. He says we are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. He says like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily satisfied. Now, I have serious concerns with, with some of the things that, that C.S. Lewis taught in other places. But he hit the mark here. This is a question that we all need to ask ourselves. Am I too easily satisfied with anything in this life? Am I too satisfied with, with anything? If I'm finding my pleasure, my fulfillment, my joy in anything in this life, I am far too easily satisfied. Listen to Jeremiah Burroughs from his excellent little book, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. <laughs> he says, The reason why you have not got contentment in the things of the world is not because you have not got enough of them. That is not the reason. But the reason is because they are not proportionable to that immortal soul of yours that is capable of God Himself. Brother, sister, you have been, the, been given the capacity to know and to worship God. You can enjoy in this life a foretaste of what you will enjoy for all eternity. Don't be satisfied with anything less than God himself. The Apostle Paul says in Philippians 4, 11 through 13, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to, abide, how to abound in, every, in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of, of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Paul learned to be content in every and every circumstance and situation because Paul was satisfied with God. What about you? Are you satisfied with God? Is God enough for you? If you're looking around at other things, if you're discontented with your circumstances, you're saying that God is not enough for you. It's idolatry. Again from Burroughs, he says, this is how the mature Christian has learned the secret of contentment in all circumstances. He's contented if he has a crust, but bread and water. Yet, if God should give unto him kingdoms and empires and all the world to rule, if he should give it to him for his portion, he would not be satisfied with that. You will never be satisfied with the things of this world because you are not of this world. Because this world is not your home. Because you were created for greater things. You're an eternal being made in the image of God, made to love and worship God. Don't be satisfied with anything else than God. Just think about it. And my son Owen loves to eat. That kid can eat. He can eat as many pancakes as me. The other evening for dinner, Jane made pizza and he had four pieces of pizza. Now, Owen is only, it's a little over three feet tall. He's not going to stay three feet tall. He's going to grow. I think he's going to be, uh, be a lot bigger than I am. But imagine if Owen was, was not, say, six foot five, but imagine if, if Owen was 300 feet tall. No matter how much food we shoveled into his gullet, it would never be enough. I feel like that now. No amount of food could ever satisfy him because he would have a greater capacity than we could satisfy. You have been given a greater capacity than you can imagine. A capacity that, that all of eternity 
will not fill up. There will come a time when, when, you, are, when you, are thrown, you have thrown off this mortal coil, when, when you are no longer in, uh, tempted, no longer dealing with sin and, and sickness and the constraints of, of time and a, and, a, and a finite body, when you have a glorified body. There's a time that will come when you will know Christ even as you are known. And that, is, that knowledge is going to continue and abound for all eternity and will never be enough. Eternity will not suffice to fill up your enjoyment of God and your satisfaction of God. If you love God, if you grow in love with God, you will be increasingly content. You'll be satisfied with Him. You'll be content with what you have. The writer of Hebrews says, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. God will never leave you nor forsake you. So you could be content whether you're suffering want or abounding. You can be content because God is with you. And if you love God, you'll be thankful for all that he has given you now. Allow me to, to quote Jeremiah or refer to Jeremiah Burroughs once again. This really is an excellent book, The Red Jewel of Christian Contentment. We, we do have it in the church library if you want to borrow it. But Burroughs speaks of, of bringing a beggar child into your home. He lived on the streets. You, you gave him a home. He's clothed in rags. You dress him warmly. He's he fed on scraps and garbage. You give him sumptuous meals. And now imagine that child with a sense of entitlement, being unhappy, being unthankful with, with all that you have given him and done for him, thinking that he deserves more. Aren't we like that beggar child when we're discontented? Think about what you deserve. You weren't just a beggar. You were a rebel against the Most High God. And God didn't just, just house and clothe and feed you. He has adopted you into His family. God didn't just give you stuff. He gave you His Son. You are a child of God. It cost you nothing. It cost him the life of his son. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Romans 8.32 So as we close, remember that, that obedience to the 10th commandment is a, a vital part of obedience to the great commandment, to, to all the commandments. If you love your neighbor, you will be happy that he's being blessed. If you love God, you'll be content and thankful for all that He has given you. But we acknowledge the reality, don't we, that that's not true of us, ever. That even in our best moments, we have not loved our neighbor as ourselves. Even in our best moments, we have not loved God as we are commanded to. You, you can't look at this commandment or any of the commandments and think you're doing pretty well. But as we look at this commandment and all of the commandments, we see our failure. We see our failure. We're driven from ourself, from our self-righteousness, from our self-reliance, and we're driven to Christ for His righteousness, for His obedience to the great commandment. Benjamin Keach asked in his catechism, is, is any man able perfectly to keep the commandments of God? He says, no mere man is able in this life perfectly to keep the commandments of God, but daily breaks them in thought, word, and deed. And this, this command, this 10th commandment, as all the commandments certainly show us this. So Keaton asks, what is then the purpose of the law since the fall? The purpose of the law since the fall is to reveal the perfect righteousness of God. That his people may know his will for their lives, and the ungodly being convicted of their sin may be restrained therein and brought to Christ for salvation. 
God has revealed to us his moral law as part of his covenant faithfulness. Psalm 147, 19 and 20 says, He declares his word to Jacob, his statutes and rules to Israel. He has not dealt thus with any other nation. They do not know his rules. Praise the Lord. The Lord gave his moral law to his covenant people so that they would know how he wants them to live, what is required of them. It's an amazing blessing. But God has given us his moral law for the same reason. In the new covenant, God has put, put his law in, within us. He has written it on our hearts, Jeremiah 31, 33. And like Paul says in, in Romans 7, verses 7 and 8, what then shall we say? That the law is sin by no means. If it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. And Paul goes on to say, then who will deliver me from this body of death? And praise the Lord for Jesus Christ. The commandments, all of them, 1 through 10, show us the holiness of God. They show us our sin. They show us how God demands that we live. They show us our need for Christ. They show us our need for forgiveness and to help us to rejoice in the forgiveness that we have in Christ. They help us to love God more. If you love God, you will keep all of His commandments, not out of an attempt to earn favor with Him, not out of servile fear, but out of love. God has said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, we praise you for this holy word. For in your holy word, we see your holiness. Lord, in your holy word, we see our need. Help us, I pray, through the power of your Holy Spirit. Lord, to let your word wash over us, revealing our sin, leading us to repentance and faith, helping us, Lord, to be satisfied in you. Help us, Lord, to grow in our love for you. Lord, we fail every day. Yet, Lord, we pray that you would help us to love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We pray that you would help us to love our neighbor as ourselves. Help us, Lord, to fulfill your moral law for your glory and for our good. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.